Good morning. How are we? It's good to see you guys. Wow, I'm so loud. I'm already a loud person, but this makes me even more loud. Uh, well, it's good to see you. I was glad to, I'm glad that you're back from our Christmassy holiday. I hope all of your Christmases were magical. Uh, me and my family, we did something new this year where we all gave each other the same gift, which was the flu. And uh, so we were sick. And the flu is magical in its own way, how it hops from one person to the next. But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here and that we survived thanks to Tamiflu. The Lord is gracious through the work of Tamiflu. Okay. We're getting back into our series this morning in 1 John. Okay, so if you can remember, we, we took a break from 1 John during the season of Advent, but if you can remember way far back, like three weeks ago, we were in 1 John, where John had really just been saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, which was that we should love one another, that we as Christians ought to love one another. John spent the majority of this letter talking about how we as Christians ought to love one another. And this morning is no different. He's just going to keep beating that drum this morning, as we're soon going to see. So with that being said, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to 1 John 3, 19. And while you're doing that, I want to tell you about a terrible thing that I accidentally did a few years ago, okay? Something I did that was both terrible, but it was an accident, okay? I didn't mean to do this, okay? So a few years ago, I was a waiter at a restaurant, and it was a, a legit restaurant, like magazines were writing about us. It was named like one of the best new restaurants in Dallas. So it was, it was a good restaurant. When people went there, that meant it was, it was very busy and that people expected the, the servers, the waiters to be on their A game every time they came in. And so one night I had this mother and this daughter that were sat at one of my tables. And as they were sitting down, I noticed that they leaned this pair of crutches against the wall. Okay. And so I, I've had crutches before. I've, I've seen, I've talked with people. I've had friends that had crutches before. I'm not afraid to talk about crutches, okay? And so I walk up to the table. I'm like pouring their water. I'm like, how y'all doing? They're like, oh, we're great. That's what everybody says when the waiter asks you that. And then they tell me, oh, the daughter's in town visiting and we're just kind of taking her out to, uh, she's had kind of a rough few months. We're taking her out to kind of cheer her up. She's taking a semester off college. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. These crutches are staring at me. What's up with those? And so what I ask them is, who's got the bum leg? Okay? Some of y'all seem to have already known that that wasn't a good thing to say. I apparently didn't at the time. So I say, who's got the bum leg? And all of a sudden, the tenor of the conversation changes. They just like look at me shocked that I would even mention it. So I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. And the the girl, the daughter, she just kind of looks down at her menu and she says, me. Wow, they're a little sensitive, okay? I know it'll help. Let's keep talking about it. So I'm like, hey, I'll try to connect. I, know, I was on crutches for a long time when I was a kid, and so I know that's, it's the worst. You know, how long have you had your crutches? And she's like, well, you know, I got in an accident about three months ago. I just cut her off. I'm like, wow, you've been on crutches for three months? That is a long time. That's crazy. When are you going to be back to 100%? And she kind of like gives me this look like, what's wrong with you? And she just says, I'm not sure. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. Some people don't want to talk to their waiter. They just want me to bring them food. So that's what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just get their food. And it'll be great. And so that's what happened. I just, I got them their food. I clearly offended them. But they were polite about it. They were, they were nice. They even left me a good tip, okay? 
And so as, as I saw they were about to leave, I kind of went back to their table. I was like, hey, guys, thanks for coming in. Uh, and hey, I, I hope that leg starts to feel better. Kind of, I didn't, I didn't do the finger guns, but that's what I did with my words and my eyes. And that was it, okay? And they left, and that was it. But that was not it. Because a few minutes later, the hostess, one of our hostesses comes to me and is like, hey, I just sat someone down at, at one of your tables. I was like, well, which table? It's like, I don't remember the number. It's just over there. I was like, well, who was sitting there last? She was like, oh, it was that mother and daughter. You know, the daughter that was missing a leg. I'm sorry, what? She's like, yeah, it was a mother and a daughter, and the daughter was on crutches because she was missing a leg. Let me just rewind the tape for you. I walked up to the table, and my first question was, who's got the bum leg? Yeah. And so then I'm like, I'll connect with them, and I'll say, I've been on crutches. I'm just like you, as I'm a waiter, fully recovered with both legs. I've had crutches before. I know what your life is like. And then I asked her, when are you going to be back to 100%? Probably never, because she's missing a leg. And then, to make it all worse, after they had, they left me a good tip, we just got over the difficulty and the awkwardness. I said, I hope that leg starts to feel better, because I never saw her stand up. So, crutches, here's why I tell you that story. I made some assumptions, and they got me in trouble. I made some assumptions, and I completely misread the situation, all right? Because I saw crutches, and I thought, I know what's going on here. Everyone that I've ever seen who had crutches had a leg, it was just injured, and they were recovering. And eventually they, got, they, got, they were done with the crutches. But apparently that's not always the case, because she was missing a leg. Here's why I tell you that. Sometimes we open our Bibles and we treat it the same way. As I misread the situation by reading my assumptions into the situation, sometimes we open our Bibles and we end up reading our assumptions onto the text. We end up misreading, misinterpreting, completely walking away from the text with something that isn't really what it's all about, okay? So in the same way that we end up misreading and misinterpreting situations all the time, it's important that we slow down this morning as we read this text and examine the context lest we walk away with an interpretation that doesn't have a leg to stand on. Our text today... Let's just move past it. Our text today is one that is really easy to make some hasty assumptions about. We make some hasty assumptions about what John is saying. And if we're not careful, we'll walk away with an incorrect interpretation. And so my hope is this morning that we'll examine our assumptions, we'll weigh them against the context of 1 John, and then rightly interpret John's exhortation. So with that in mind, let's pray together as we look at our text. Lord, I thank you uh, for your grace to us. I thank you that you love us. I thank you for your gospel. I pray now as we, as we study your word, Lord, that we would, uh, we would have ears to hear, that we would be humble, and Lord, that we would, uh, we would interpret it rightly. Uh, we cannot do this apart from your spirit, so we thank you for your spirit, and we thank you for your grace. Uh, I pray that we would be equipped and edified, uh, and that, Lord, that we would worship you, even as we, as we listen to a sermon or as we study the word. It's in Christ's name that we pray all of this. Amen. So again, our text is 1 John 3, 19 through 22. But first, I want to go ahead and tell you what verses 19 and 20 do not mean, okay? I, want to, I just want to get that out of the way so we can get to what they do mean. I'll read it first. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Here's how most people interpret this text. Here's how I've heard this text interpreted many times. They'll say that the people that John is writing to are in need of some reassurance. Okay, they're, they're doubting that they're actually Christians. Okay, so you see that? They're, they want to know that they're of the truth, that they're Christians, and they want to find some reassurance for their heart. Okay, because we see in verse 20 that our, their heart is apparently condemning them. All right? By this we shall know we're of the truth, reassure our heart before him whenever our heart condemns us. Have you ever experienced that? When your heart, you're walking through the season where your heart's just condemning you. You feel distant from God. You feel far from God. You feel like all of God's children, he just, he just loves everybody except you're like the problem child that he's kind of frustrated that he sent the son to die for. We walk through these seasons of condemnation. And so that's what they're saying. They say that John's readers must be feeling super condemned and they're in need of some reassurance. And John's reassurance is that God's greater than our heart and he knows everything. Meaning, according to most interpreters I've heard, your heart may be throwing condemnation at you, but God is greater than the condemnation you feel in your heart. God's redemption is greater than whatever condemnation your heart throws at you. Because God's opinion of you is ultimately what matters, not how your heart feels in a particular season. So therefore, take comfort that God knows everything. He knows you're saved. You may doubt it, you, your heart may doubt it, but God knows what is true. Therefore, be encouraged, be reassured, be encouraged to know that you are of the truth. That's how most interpreters interpret this text. And that sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Everybody, this is, this is how y'all responded. I think that does sound great. I feel encouraged after I hear that. But here's the problem. That's not at all what John is talking about. That's not at all what John is talking about this morning. It sounds right. It's, it's very encouraging, but it's not what John is saying. He's not trying to give advice on how to overcome the false condemnation that we often experience as believers. There are other verses in the New Testament that you can turn for that. Romans 8 is a great one, but this isn't Romans 8. John's not saying that here. Instead, John is describing how followers of Christ ought to act, and he's inviting us to act accordingly. He's saying that believers are those who obey Christ and therefore believers obey Christ. That's what John is saying this morning. That's the point he's making. So you see how those two interpretations are vastly different. So I guess we need to spend a few more minutes. Good thing I got some time to talk about how to understand this text. Let's begin with verse 19. It says that by this we shall know that we are of the truth. If I were to ask you how to tell the difference between someone who is a believer and is not a believer, how to tell the difference between someone who is a Christian and is not a Christian, what would you say? Would you say, oh, well, did you, did you look at the back of their car and did you see a fish? Did they have a bumper sticker that said, are you following Jesus this close? I don't know what that impression is, but it's somebody. Or is it, is it the words that they say? Oh, they don't say bad, they don't say bad cuss words. Instead, they say fudge and fiddlesticks. They talk like Ned Flanders. Is that how we can tell if someone's a believer versus someone who is an unbeliever? No, how, how do we tell? John's readers are actually trying to figure this out. In this context, they've had a ton of people kind of sweep through their church claiming to have fellowship with God, claiming to be true worshipers of God, 
And yet they teach doctrine and they live in such a way that is contrary to the teaching of the apostles. And so they've kind of said, hey, this John guy who's writing you these letters, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know at all what he's talking about. Listen to us. We have true fellowship with God. And so John's had to spend a lot of this letter just telling us how to discern someone from someone who is of the truth and someone who is not of the truth. Someone who is of the truth and someone who is a liar. How to tell those who abide in life and those who abide in death. How to tell those who are of the light and how to tell those who are of the darkness. These are all just ways that John has used to distinguish someone who is a Christian from someone who is not. And here's how you can tell, according to John, early on in the book, he gives us the answer. How can you tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? First John 2, 4 through 6 says, whoever says, I know him, I'm a Christian, that's what they say, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. You say, John, how can we know that we are of By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, meaning Christ, walked. How can you tell a believer from an unbeliever? A believer ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. But what does walking in the way of Christ look like, John? Great question. I'm glad you asked. First John 3, 10. By this, it is evident. It's visible. You can tell. You can see who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then again, 1 John 3, 14 and 16. We know, we can tell that we have passed out of death into life because we What? Love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You can pick a Christian out of a crowd. You can pick Christians out of a crowd because they're the ones who love one another. Someone who loves his brother, but not just the love in the way that our culture tends to understand or even the way that we understand love often, where we just love something, we have this affection for something because of the joy it brings us or we enjoy them and the benefits that we derive from them, they make us happy. No, when he says love, he means what Zach said a few weeks ago, doing what the Bible says is best for them even when it costs us. Love is doing what the Bible says is best for a person even when it costs us. He means the sacrificial love that we see in Christ laying his life down for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to do the same. So by loving one another in this way, that's how we know that we're of the truth. And then look at what comes just before our passage this morning. 1 John 3, 17, and then I put in the beginning of our passage this morning. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this, we shall know that we are of the truth. By this, we shall know we are of the truth. How shall we know that we are of the truth? By loving one another. Specifically, when our brother's in need and we can supply his need, not closing our heart against him. Saying, oh, I'd love to help, but oh man, I'm I'm real busy but sending thoughts your way, good vibes your way, prayer hands emoji. 
That's not love. Instead, actually, sacrificially loving one another. That's how we know that we are of the truth. So in our text this morning, John is just going to reiterate the same point he's making throughout the letter. Everything John's saying today is just piggybacking off of this command that we ought to love one another. It's not about reassuring ourselves that we're Christians, but rather obeying Christ's command that we should love one another because as a result of us being Christians. So little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And now verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. We reassure our heart before him in the same way that we know we're of the truth, by loving one another in deed and in truth, not just in word or talk. But that word reassure can be a bit confusing for us. When we read the word reassure, we, we tend to think of dispelling doubts and fears. You know, so when someone's going through a really hard time, we reassure them by telling them everything's gonna be okay. Or when you're a kid and you think there's a monster living under your bed, you need your parents to reassure you that there is not a monster under your bed so you can actually go to sleep. But that's, that's not what John is talking about here. That's what we think when we hear the word reassure, and that's why so many folks think that John's telling us how to reassure ourselves that we're Christians. But that's not what John has in mind here. The Greek word translated here as reassure is the word patho. Everybody say that with me, patho. It's like the currency with a lisp, okay? Patho, right? So patho is used 52 times in the New Testament, including this one time here in 1 John. And the vast majority of the time, it's translated as persuade or convince, not reassure, persuade or convince. And so though reassure can work in many contexts, I don't think it communicates John's sentiment as clearly as a word like convince or persuade in this context. Because we know that John is not encouraging us to reassure our hearts. Remember, he's encouraging us to convince our heart to love our brother, sacrificially, indeed, and in truth. So his point here is that by actually loving one another, we'll know that we're of the truth and will convince our heart to adopt this new way of relating to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Does anybody's heart just wake up in the morning excited, just super pumped and ready to lay down your wants, your desires, what's yours for the sake of your brother? Show of hands? Oh yeah, I, no. Not me at least, not me. We, this is uncomfortable for us. It's uncomfortable for us. Maybe you can give me coffee first in the morning and then maybe I'll think about loving you, but most likely not. Our hearts have to be convinced to adopt this path that Christ has paved before us. And so it's kind of like when a professional basketball player tries to throw the ceremonial first pitch at a major league baseball game, okay? Yes, some of you have seen, it's amazing. So for those who don't know, every baseball game begins with this ceremonial first pitch where a famous person who doesn't play baseball will go stand on the pitcher's mound and throw a ball toward home plate. And what's amazing is when basketball players do this, when those are the people that are throwing out the first pitch, they are lucky if they can even throw it in the general direction of home plate which is amazing to me because these guys are like incredible athletes. 
I mean, the world's greatest basketball players play in the NBA, but you put a baseball on those guys' hands and they, they can't throw it near home plate to save their life. I'm a, I throw a baseball better than some of the best basketball players in the world. And that's amazing to me. One time I watched, uh, I was at a Texas Rangers game and I saw Dirk Nowitzki throw the ceremonial first pitch and he threw it into the stands, okay? Which is incredible. Why is it so hard for these guys to throw a baseball? Why is it so hard for them? It, it weighs a third of a pound. Why is that so hard for them to throw it? I've seen guys like, there's like three bounces before it even gets to home plate. Well, because they're not baseball players. They're basketball players. Their whole life is about doing what is best to be a basketball player. You're never gonna catch LeBron James working on his slider or his fastball. No, he's, he's working on how to shoot free throws and he's working on how to pass more efficiently and how to, how to travel every time he has the ball without the refs noticing. That's what LeBron's working on. But imagine this. Imagine LeBron James tomorrow got recruited by the Texas Rangers to be a starting pitcher. He'd probably be as good as some that we've had recently. But imagine he gets recruited to be the starting pitcher. He forsakes his life of basketball in order to be a baseball player. Is he going to continue dedicating so much time to free throws and passing efficiently? No. He's gonna adopt this new way of life. He's going to have to adopt a whole new way of training. He's a baseball player now. He's no longer a basketball player. And so he's gotta train himself to do the things that baseball players do and no longer do the things that basketball players do. And our hearts are like these NBA athletes. Our hearts are really, really, really good at a lot of things. Chasing after desires, oh, we're the best. But you know what our hearts are terrible at? Loving our brother. Loving one another. We're born with this, this inclination towards sin and selfishness and this me first mentality. That is the sport we play, and we play it very well. But as believers, we've been recruited to play a whole new sport. We've signed with a new team where it's commonplace to sacrifice our, de our desires, our comforts for the sake of one another. Is LeBron James a good basketball or a good baseball player simply because he's been signed by the Rangers? No. And are we good at loving one another simply because we're Christians? No. Rather, we convince our heart to adopt these new habits, to no longer deal with one another in this selfish and callous way of relating, but instead to walk in the way of Christ and to do the very thing the heart of a Christian ought to do, which is love one another. This is the command God's given, and John has repeated throughout this letter, and that's why he says that we reassure or convince our heart before him. We do it before him. When my three-year-old, I have a three-year-old son and a one-year-old daughter, when he's in his room playing with his Legos and my one-year-old daughter, so happy and joyful, crawls into his room to play with his Legos, do you think he's eager to share his Legos? No, he is not, not at all. And if he's alone in his room, he's, he's just probably not gonna share his Legos. He's, he's gonna push his sister, he might even hit her, if she really is trying to get that Lego, because he doesn't want anyone playing with the stuff that's his. But what happens when I'm in the room with him, when his sister starts crawling towards him to try to play with those Legos? 
What happens when he's aware that I'm a witness to however he treats his sister when she wants to play with the Legos? Most of the time, not all the time, he still pushes her a lot. Most of the time, he's more generous to her because I've told him to share with his sister and he knows this. And so he has this motivation to do what I've asked him to do simply because I'm there watching what he does. And likewise, John's subtle admonition is that God has commanded that we love one another. So we ought to convince our heart in his presence to do so. And so just to recap, verse 19, by loving one another in deed and in truth, we are giving evidence that we are Christians and we're convincing our heart to obey Christ's command to love one another, not to be so callous and selfish in the presence of God. And then he says in verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Again, when we read this, we think, Whenever you feel sad, just remember that God loves you and he knows you're saved because he knows everything. And though that's nice, again, that's not what John's saying here, but in order to understand what he actually is saying, we have to talk about this word condemns because that word kind of trips us up. It kind of freaks us out because we have all these assumptions about what that word means. We have these uh, memories of we've read Romans 8 and we think of condemns as eternal condemnation. Or we think of condemns as what the enemy does to us. He condemns us, so we doubt that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But that's not the sort of condemnation John's talking about here. The word translated as condemns in Greek is only used three times in the New Testament, twice in our passage this morning. But the only other time is in Galatians. And I think reading in Galatians will help us understand what John is actually trying to say here and what he is not trying to say here. Galatians 2.11, for some context, uh, Peter is hanging out in Antioch, and he's hanging out with a bunch of Gentiles. Peter's a Jew, hanging out with Gentiles, and most Jews thought, that's a big no-no, don't hang out with the Gentiles, all right? But Peter's been commanded to make disciples of all nations, so he's hanging out with Gentiles until some Jews come into town. And he's like, what? I wasn't hanging out, I don't even know those guys, I wasn't doing it. I don't know those guys. I'm just, I'm, ha- I'm here to see you. That's how he responds when they come into town. So let's read what it says. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I, com- I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's the same word from our text this morning. He stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul's not saying that Peter's salvation is at risk. He's not saying that Peter is eternally condemned. And he's not saying that Peter is doubting his salvation, going through a rough season where he felt distant from God. No, he's just saying that Peter did something wrong something that was not in step with the gospel. God explicitly commanded Peter to make disciples of all nations, and he was disobeying that command. And so he stood condemned. And that's exactly John's point in verse 20. When our heart condemns us, whenever we do not obey the command to love one another. If our brother comes to us in need and we can help him and we refuse to, then we're not obeying the command that Christ gave us to love one another. And so we stand 
condemned. And our heart serves as this evidence against us. Our heart's lack of love for our brother is what condemns us. Our heart's like a rat. It just rats us out in the presence of God. And if you've sinned against your brother by closing your heart against him, this is what John wants you to realize, that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And here's what he means. God does not treat the one who is in need in the same way that we so often treat the one who is in need. God is greater. As we have disregarded our brother and his need, God does not do that. Our heart doesn't want to love sacrificially, but you know who is infinitely greater than our heart? God is. How so? John 15, 12 through 13, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another. Okay, we've heard that a lot today. As I have loved you. Greater, there's that word, great. God is greater. Love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then in Ephesians 2, we read that we were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great, there's that word again, love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is nothing like our selfish and callous heart. He is far greater. We were desperate and in need. Our need was so great that we were dead in our trespasses and sins that we once walked. But get this, God being rich, he has lots of resources. We have none. And him being rich in this resource of mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he gave us life through Christ. We who were lowly, he's raised us up, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and he adopted us into his home so that he can lavish us with these immeasurable riches of his grace. So what John's doing here, John's drawing our attention to the greatness of God so that it might soften our heart toward our brother who is in need. Understanding and appreciating the greatness of God should drive us to imitate the love that we've received because God is greater than our heart. And in case that doesn't motivate us, John adds, and he knows everything. God knows everything, including the love and compassion that you have shown your brother, as well as the love and compassion that you have withheld from your brother. Our hearts, they rat us out. Because God knows everything. We might be able to convince our friends by posting stuff on social media. We might be able to convince people in our community group that we are actually loving our brother. When someone among us is in need, we can make excuses that sound pretty legitimate and say, I just, can't, I just can't help that guy out right now. And if we're honest, we do that a lot. But here's the thing. You can't fool God. He knows everything. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. He's talking about how they've suffered greatly at the hands of men who hate that they're spreading the gospel. 
And this is what he says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Well, why would you do that, Paul? Because we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And likewise, we love one another not to please man, That's really easy to do because man only judges on outward appearance. But instead, God looks on the heart and he knows everything. So we love one another to please God who tests our hearts and knows everything. So when our hearts condemn us and our our hearts rat us out, they say, "This this dude is not obeying the command to love his brother. John gives us two motivations to convince us to, in fact, love one another. And the first is that, remember, you were in need. We are in need and we continue to be in daily need. And guess what? God is greater and he supplies our need in far greater ways than we can fathom. So we who have received such love, we then ought to imitate such love. That's the first motivation. The second he gives is that the Christian's priority in life is doing what pleases God. And we can certainly make it look like we're doing what we ought, like we're loving our brother, but you can't fool God because he knows everything. Therefore, live your life to please him. Live your life to please him, not man, but please him. And with all that being said, John then shifts his focus in verse 21 through 22. Whereas 19 and 20 were primarily about our reluctance to obey the command to love one another, now these final verses are going to focus on the joy of walking in repentance and obedience in Christ. 1 John 3, 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Notice that he first calls them beloved. He calls them beloved. I had a roommate in college who was an exchange student from China, but he was actually a Christian. He was a believer. And in China, when they teach you English, they're not going to be teaching you words like, you know, redemption or church or glory or, or, or whatever. And so a lot of his English words, he'd actually learned from reading the Bible in English. And so that sometimes made it awkward because he would think, oh, this is how people talk in English. And he would be like quoting Bible verses, specifically I would wake up every morning, come out of my room, and he was always awake before everybody else. He, this guy like never slept. And he would say, good morning, beloved. I was like, stop saying that. That is so weird. But he never stopped saying it. Because when he read the Bible, he saw this is what fellow Christians call one another. And that's what John is doing here in our text this morning. He calls his audience beloved, ones who are loved. He encourages them because many in his audience, as even many of us might, realize that our heart stands condemned. Right now, we're convicted about how we treat one another, and John is encouraging us. John calls us beloved. Our sinning against our brother does not somehow put us outside the grace of Christ. In fact, if it's, it's not too late. We can always obey the command to love our brother and thereby not be condemned. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if our heart does not stand condemned, if we're loving one another in deed and in truth and obeying what Christ has commanded, we have confidence before God. <clears throat> now, we might be tempted to understand this in a wrong way. 
If we never do anything wrong, then we have confidence before God. That's how we might be tempted to interpret this. That your confidence before God is somehow contingent upon how little you mess up. But that's not what he's saying. We, we think that because it's actually this weird type of conditional sentence. And this is actually the third sermon in a row that I've preached that had one of these weird conditional sentences in it that are somewhat difficult for us to understand in English. So this is what's called a conditional sentence or what's, what's called an if-then statement. So I don't know if you can see this. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, parentheses, then we have confidence before God. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And most if-then sentences that we see in English are all about something causing something else. So if you as a worship minister sing Christmas songs after Christmas, if, then your congregation will stone you. They will, they will riot, okay? If you sing Christmas songs after Christmas, like in February, they will stone you. And you see how the if caused the then. Had you not sung the Christmas songs, they would not have stoned you. But you did, so you got what you deserved, right? That's how most if-then statements we experience in English. That's how they work. But that's not what he's saying here. Instead, this is an if-then statement where the if serves as evidence for the then. That's a very confusing way to say it. So last time I preached, I gave this example. If someone else is leading worship on a Sunday morning, someone that's not me, then I'm preaching. And that's how you can tell. It's this evidence. If you see someone leading worship that's not me, well, then you can expect that I'm I'm probably preaching. So here's my formal. if, If Greg is leading worship, then I am preaching. Greg leading worship doesn't cause me to preach, right? I'm not. Me preaching is not the result of him leading worship. Like, I wasn't planning on leading worship, but then he starts strumming that guitar, and I was like, I gotta preach. I can't help it. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Greg leading worship is evidence that I am the one preaching this morning. And likewise, when we love one another in deed and in truth, our heart doesn't stand condemned in this regard. And that serves as evidence that we are people who have great confidence before the throne of God. If it is true that we are people whose hearts are not condemned, then it's also true that we have confidence before God. In other words, the type of people who love indeed and in truth are the type of people who have confidence before God. Not on the basis of our works or how good of a job that we're doing, But rather, our good works are evidence that we are the children of God, that we are of the truth. That's all he's saying here. And so, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God because we're believers. We're the type of people whose hearts would not condemn them. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We have confidence before God confidence that whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the last, the last time I'll correct our misinterpretation. There's an opportunity for us to misread us and end up thinking that God is Santa Claus, okay? If you keep his commandments, you do what pleases him, you're on the nice list, then he'll give you whatever you ask for, okay? Is that true? Are these prosperity guys right? Should I be praying for a jet? Or if I don't get my private jet, is it because I haven't kept his commandments perfectly? 
Now you probably guessed, no, that's not what he's saying. Really, John's just repeating something he heard Jesus say. Matthew 7, 8 through 11. Jesus says, for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Why does Jesus say that God is giving us good things? Is it because we're perfectly obedient? Is it because we've kept all the commandments? Is it because we never sin? No. It's because we're in need. We're hungry. We need bread. We need fish. And we ask, and our God is a good father. When we're in need, we can with confidence ask God to supply our need, and he is like a good father, and indeed he is a good father who delights in loving his children by supplying their every need. I think John's doing something extremely precise and even poetic here. Remember the brother who is in need that John told us to love sacrificially? You remember that guy? Now John is putting us in the place of that brother in need. John is saying, you're that brother. You're the one in need. You know what God does when you're in need? He hears your prayer. He listens. He's like a good father who hears his child's request for bread, and he gives you what you need. He does what's best for you, even to the point of sending his son to lay down his life for you. He gives sacrificially. When you're in need, you're in need of life. You were dead in your trespasses. He supplies it. You're in need of grace. He supplies it. If you're in need of right standing, in need of confidence before his throne, he supplies it. You're in need of a new heart, a spirit to keep you from sin, he supplies it. You're in need of a guarantee that neither height nor depth nor anything can separate you from the love that we have been shown in Christ, and he indeed supplies that need. And when you're in need of food and clothing and resources, God supplies it. Not only that, he gives us a family to supply it. Not because you're awesome, And not even because you obey most of the time. We don't, I don't think. But because you're a child. Because you're his child. Because you're a child of God. We have been made children of God. And because we're children of God, our Heavenly Father delights to give us what we ask him for. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The question he's answering here, again, is not what will make God hear our, play- our prayers? What do we have to do in order to make God hear our prayers? Or how can we get God to give us whatever we ask him for? Rather, he's asking who are those that keep his commandments and do what pleases him? Believers. Those are the ones who keep his commands and do what pleases him. Believers do. Children of God. So this just brings us back to the question we began with. How can you tell the difference between someone who is a believer and someone who is an unbeliever? And in this text, John says, the ones who keep his commandments and do what pleases him, those are the children of God. Those are the ones who shall know that they are of the truth. Those are the ones who convince their heart not to be so selfish, to walk in the way that Christ walked. Those are the ones who love in deed and in truth. And those are the ones who have, been, who have this confidence before God to ask him for bread, for healing, for grace. Believers are those who keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So if I were to give a summary of this text this morning, it would be this, love one another. Have I mentioned that today? Love one another. 
It feels redundant, but then go read the whole book of 1 John, and it's a lot more redundant than my sermon. Love one another, actually, not just in words, and by doing so, we will know that we are Christians, and we'll convince our hearts to actually act like it in the presence of God. We disobey Christ's command to love one another. Remember that God does not share in that wickedness. God is not as mean as we are. His love for the poor among us is so much greater, and he knows whether we have obeyed this command or not. Therefore, let us love one another and obey Christ's command. Because those who obey Christ's commands receive from God whatever they ask because they are his children, not by their works, but because of his great love. And so if you're feeling discouraged, he's not trying to make you feel like you're not a Christian by pointing out all the ways that you don't love your brother. It's true that probably most of the time we don't obey Christ, but that's not the end of the story. Rather, as we were in desperate need in the midst of our sin and our callousness and selfishness, God doesn't share in our selfishness and callousness, and he doesn't close himself off against us in the midst of our need. Hear me, God rescues us as we sang, not because we're in no need of a rescuer, otherwise he wouldn't have rescued us, but because we're in desperate need of a rescuer. John's encouraging us to embrace the reality that we've been rescued and in so doing, to love one another at the same time, in the same way, to walk in the way Christ walked, he who laid down his life for us, we ought to do the same for our brothers. Let's pray as the men come forward to pass out the elements for communion. Lord, we confess that we need you. We confess that we do not obey your commands. We do not love one another. Our heart requires a great amount of convincing to walk in the way of Christ. But you've not left us in our need. You've raised us up. You've given us your spirit. And he convinces our heart to obey your commands. Thank you that you cover us in the blood of Christ, Christ who obeyed perfectly, and that his status of perfection is granted to us in fullness. I pray that this reality would not just sit in us as this stagnant pool of water, but would spring forth in love for one another, that we'd walk in the good works that you have created us for. So we thank you for your grace. We praise you for the love you've shown us. It's not in our name that we pray. We have no right to stand before you by our name alone, but rather in Christ's name. We stand in your presence, confident, redeemed, forgiven children of God. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.